What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is my sit-down with Jonathan Koch, President and Chief Creative Officer for Asylum Entertainment. Now, Jonathan's story has been told in TED Talks, was the subject of a 2020 episode. I really could not wait to get in front of him. This was, podcast aside, legitimately, one of the most impactful conversations I've ever had with someone before. It is a story that you are going to want to hear. It is a story that you will repeat to your friends in the business. An unbelievable, truly life and death story that Jonathan has survived and lived to tell. And I think for all of us, quote unquote, busy executives, professionals in the TV industry who drive to and from work in traffic all day and we come home and we think that our TV issues and stresses at work are actually something to like worry about. I think Jonathan's story will give you some much needed perspective on what's truly important in life and what is a big deal and what is a small deal. And everybody, our TV issues, our TV work-related stresses are not a big deal. I think that's what I took away from this the most. I think this is what you will take away from it. Uh, but we did we did cover the entertainment stuff. I got the whole story of Asylum. Matt Shanfield and Ben Petoni from Asylum also sit in this episode. We hear what they have going on. Uh, but I got the whole story of the company starting in 2003 when Jonathan and his partner Steve Michaels first got together. Uh, the 30 for 30 episodes, Mike Tyson projects that they worked on together, their unprecedented deal with Reels, uh, 10 Emmy nominations for producing The Kennedys, doing projects with Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, National Geographic. They've got a lot going on over there at Asylum. So I got all the industry conversation that we usually have. We even covered when they sold the company to Legendary some years ago, but really it's Jonathan's story of survival and what happened to him on one fateful weekend as he was traveling to a real screen event back in D.C. that would change his and his family's life forever. And that is how we end this episode. This is my sit down with Jonathan Koch. I hope you enjoy it. Matt Shamfield, go ahead. You want to kick things off? Uh, I, I drive a lot. I live all the way in the South Bay, and our offices here at Asylum are in Encino, Sherman Oaks, right near your house, Jimmy. And um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of industry podcasts, and um, I'm a big fan of yours. That's I think that you have big names. I think that you uh, offer different perspective on this business that we don't always hear. And um, if anything else, wanted to get my boss, Jonathan Koch, who has an opinion on everything. This is also the first time, by the way, that I've had a guest come on with their own posse. So Jonathan brought some muscle today to make sure that I act right and I don't get out of line. And jump in there. This is a good old-fashioned handicap match. I know you'll appreciate that, sir. I will. As a, a wrestling reference. We're just here to keep things on the up and up. Jimmy. Yeah. All. So, Ben, Matt, real quick, before we hand over to Jonathan, the man of the hour, tell me everyone's role here at the company and how long you guys have each been here at Asylum. Ben and I head development here at Asylum. All new business opportunities, anything in the development uh, phase, we... Uh, plus, plus food recommendations. That's, <laughs> that's, that's more Ben's department. We're the creation department. The head creation of, department. We, we, got, we got rid of development. 
because development is a long, laborious, painful, never-ending process. Yes. But creation is a moment. And when their Frankenstein sits up on the table and they're ready to go pitch, that's when we do our thing. So that's what these guys brought to the table. I love it. You know, I, I, I don't have a lot of time with you. And usually I go through people's complete career trajectory and, and their backstories, where they grew up, what led them into entertainment. But, you know, Jonathan, I'd like to at least start with the creation of Asylum or where were you in your career when you first met Steve Michaels, your partner? What, what, what's the Steve Jonathan origin story? The Steve and Jonathan origin story. Well, Steve um, had started what was called Red Skies then before I met him. So he had started with our uh, uh, another partner, Eric Johnson, who was here with us uh, for a long time. And I had just sold my internet company, which was called Celebrity Sightings. I was a part of that, which um, I used to represent like all the top kids in the business for the TGIF kids and you know Full House and Home Improvement and all those kids. You, you talk in my language. I produce a show called Hollywood Darlings. Oh. That is Jody Sweet and oh. Christine Lakin from Step by yes, Step. Yes, she was part of my team too. Oh yeah, this is amazing. So I had a well, yeah. I mean, b- backing up really, I. Um, I was working at the Red Robin when I first moved to California, and I was supposed to get a waiter's job, which I applied for from school back in Pennsylvania. But when I got out here, there weren't any waiter jobs available, but they told me I could be the Red Robin. So I was actually in the suit. Um, my first day in California, I was the Red Robin. And Well, hold on. Like a mascot at the restaurant? Yeah, yes. Red Robin? Yeah, yeah, it was not a great smelling suit. I imagine that the people that had gone there before me weren't really bathers. They didn't really... Shower. Wait, hold on, did they let you in the restaurant? You just kind of walked around and took photos with people, or did you have to well, stand out on a corner to... no, no, and no, no, like no, no, no. Hold I was sign. in the restaurant. I would go to the tables and you know. I don't do remember this being part of the Robin. They well, don't here, have the Robin it, anymore, do they? Um, I don't know. I haven't been there in a long time. But I, the problem really was, is that it was my first day, and they kind of just threw me into it because I don't know that having a college degree was a prerequisite for being in there. And uh, a little, a little guy like pulled on my tail. And I turned around to him very sweetly and peacefully, and I said, hey, would you mind not pulling on my table, uh, my tail? And he lost his mind because nobody told me that the Red Robin does not talk. So <laughs> that poor kid, he's been in therapy, I'm sure, <laughs> since then. So uh, I only made that one day, and then I became a waiter, and I worked there for two years. And, um, and then um, I was a real estate cold caller. And um, then one day I was invited over to um, go bowling with um, Kirk Cameron. And as one does. Yeah. Well, I don't bowl. I'm not a strong bowler. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like I think they just didn't have enough people or something. So ended up getting invited over to his family's house. And his parents and uh, Candace and Melissa and Bridget. And his, mo- and his mom was like, was she either an acting coach or like a manager? No, she was an agent. And that's, agent, yeah. Right. So that's kind of how I got in the business because I was a Through cold the caller. Cameron family? Yeah. I was, you know, a cold caller at this real estate company and I became really close friends with Barbara and Robert. And um, Barbara said to me, you know, I have had this agency for a year and we really could use somebody who's great on the phones. Would you like to come, oh you know, gosh. work for me? So. What had happened is that Barbara had a successful agency and she right. was great and their family was great and they basically adopted me and they brought me into their family and they took, you know, really great care of me and um, it was just an amazing experience, you know, that I immediately had this incredible family that was just all for me and, you know, and I was all for them and it was just, it, it still is a great friendship. Mm-hmm. And then one day I got this kind of wild idea that 
there's a gentleman named Jim Molishuk who at the time was at Warner Brothers, and he had asked us to go to San Antonio with Candace to do a poster signing, like autograph signing. Like a mall tour yeah. thing, yeah. But it was for something called the Kids' Fair at KABB Television. Mm. So we went down there, and like we opened the door, and there were like 10,000 kids there. Yeah. And I was like, hmm? And so... I came back and I called Jim and I said, hey, you don't happen to have a list of the other stations that carry Full House? Or like, so I spent two days um, calling every single person there and saying, I, you know, I represent, you know, we'd like to come and do an appearance and wow. so forth and so on. And one of my friends said, you know, you really, really need to do something else with your life because the Cameron Gravy Train is not going to mm. run forever. So I named my company Gravy Train Productions. <laughs> and um, so... I was still like working with Barbara and doing all that stuff, but I I got a, cake, a glass cake pan with a phone inside that looked like a train, and when it would ring, it would hoot and make smoke. Right, <laughs> so I put it on my desk, and nothing happened for six months. And this is how I'm going to date myself here, but I was standing near the fax machine, and all of a sudden I look over, and there's smoke filling up the, the cake pan. <laughs> I'm like, oh my god, somebody's calling me. So I, I'm like, Gravy Train Productions, you know, making a voice. And anyway, after that, it just set fire to the whole thing. And I ended up having so much, you know, great experience working with everybody. And oh, good. A I lot almost thought you meant a literal fire because of the no. smoke. Well, I mean, there, it was dangerous, but it was still fun. And um, we, you know, we just did an incredible, you know, incredible job getting the kids out there. And they were great. And So it was like a booking agency? Yeah. I mean, I took care of the things that I guess regular agents were not that into. Right. You know, I would, you know, I did 29 events for General Mills where... I think I think it was Jody went out with the Tricks Bunny and they did appearances oh and there were you know all these things that happened and um, and we had a great time and then we were approached by Robert Landis who was the chief marketing officer of a company that used to be called LA Gear and he oh, said sure. and he said LA, LA Gear by the way was the partying gift on every Nickelodeon show if you if you, <laughs> yeah. if you didn't win the cash prize you got LA Gear you know that sounds good I your was whole on, family would get it I was on two game shows I was on Card Sharks and Match Game and I. I still have the ragu. If anybody needs it, I have a lifetime supply <laughs> of ragu, and I have a lot of starch, but I never got the shoes. But um, so Robert asked me if there was a way in which I could partner up with him and you know bring all of my kids that I represented mm. um, into the mix. So all my kids were partners in it. You know, in a way, they got um, they had the opportunity to promote their websites, okay. and it was an you know God. Uh, so that's how it got to promoting websites, and that's how it was a digital company. Yeah, well, that's you know we were really ahead of our time, but it was all really Robert. I didn't have that what much year to do with it. I think we sold it in like 1996, maybe. Oh yeah. Like no, maybe. Uh, 1999. I think we started in 1995 or 1996. And right. I mean, 99. That's like right at the peak of time to sell. Well, right? we got we got clobbered. You know, um, we had a really significant offer the year before, but we were mm-hmm. feeling it pretty big, so we right. kind of were like, "No, thank you." Um, and then we sold it for probably an eighth of that the next year really? because yeah, because the Microsoft crash and okay. all that stuff. But while I was there, um, we were angel finance, so we didn't have any opportunities to market very much. We didn't have any money for that. So I started thinking about how could I trade off some of the assets we have with standard, you know, with companies who are in the mix like Sterling McFadden, which had, you know, Teen Beat and Tiger Beat and all those things. So I made a deal with them to, you know, give us free pages in their magazine to, you know, to promote the website. We would give them pictures that they wouldn't otherwise have and so forth and so on. And then as I was continuing to look for that, I thought of an idea called the Adventure Club where it was like a Saturday morning kids show. And I went to 
a Paramount company. I can't even remember which one. And they bought it. And I remember as I was leaving, I'm like, wait a minute. I can go into a room. I can say my ideas and somebody's going to buy it. So that was like the first time I had been exposed to any of that. Okay. So this is late 90s, early 2000s. You go in and make this pitch. How different was that pitch process then than it is now? You literally just went in and pitched some folks at Paramount like, hey, I kind of have this idea. Yeah. And did you even have a one sheet at that point? Was it just a log line? No, no sizzle reel. No I, sizzle I, reel. I did, no. I, yeah. I, did have, I did have a one a one sheet, but really the assets that were the kids, you know, because they were on right. primetime network shows. So being able to do something a little bit different yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was a cool opportunity. Nothing ever came of that at all um, because we ended up selling the company and, you know, the process was even slow then. But but you caught the bug. Yeah. And I was like, this is incredible. Like, I can totally just go into a room and say something out loud and create business out of it. So I'm like, OK. So um, I ended up I created a game show. And I, my friend Bob Cosberg um, invited me to come to Merv Griffin's office to pitch Merv the game show. Very cool. And we ended up doing a deal there. And uh, I spent a year and some over at Merv's company, which was awesome. Awesome. You know, he would, my office was in the Beverly Hilton. You were out of the Beverly Hilton? Yeah. Oh, because yeah. he owned the Hilton, Yeah, he right? owned it. And he was great. And, you know, the whole company was great. We had a really great time. And, you know, um, it just played itself out. And, again, like I had sold a couple of shows and I started to understand, like, you know, this is a possibility of really, you know, follow your nose, mm -hmm. which, you know, fundamentally as an entrepreneur, that's that's your skill set. And who's opening doors for you? Do you have an agent? I just, no. I just, you're just you know, making cold calls. Yeah. I was a cold caller. Remember, I, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you're comfortable on the phone as it is. Yeah. And you're just setting up your own meetings. When you learn, like, when you are a commercial real estate cold caller, yeah. it's serious business because there are people who own class A buildings and they don't, you know. So we used to go into a room in a big circle and we would pull out objections out of a fishbowl and you would read the objection and then everybody would try to respond to it in a way in which you could take with you. So like the first time that happened to me, I picked out, you know, why should I trust somebody like you with my real estate investments? And anyway, so we went around the room and my boss finally said, you know, tell them that you make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year helping people just like you oh, with your real estate. Investments. That's, that's great. So sure enough, I go to my office, I'm making cold calls, and some guy says to me, why should I trust you with my world? I'm like, I totally have this one. Hold on. So I said to him, sir, I make hundreds of dollars a year helping people just like you with your real estate investments. And he hung up on me. So, <laughs> um, so I thought the Wolf of Wall Street script was like bulletproof. Well, I, I mean, if I had said hundreds of thousands, it probably would have been. Since I just said hundreds of dollars, he was like, oh, I don't know. Now, Jonathan, I, I know it's a sidebar that we got off track here, but I, I sold treadmills over the phone for like... Like a few months when I was like in between assistant jobs, like fresh out of school. And I always tell people my experience at that like call center I was at where we got incoming calls and trying to get someone to buy these treadmills sight unseen yeah. was like better practice to try to sell TV shows than any assistant job I ever, I ever had. A hundred percent. You know, I, there is nothing about my career that was more valuable than that one year and one day that I spent, <laughs> you know, with a telephone, a crisscross directory and a mirror. So I was smiling <laughs> when I called and that was the only thing in my, in my office, in my cubicle. All right. So you're starting to sell TV shows and, so and my, Michael's enters the picture house. So, I got this kooky idea that I wanted to see if Mike Tyson would fight in an octagon. Okay, I'm glad you got there because I was going to ask about Mike Tyson yeah. later on. So I'm glad we just yeah. got right to it. So Mike Tyson is really the reason I know Steve. Yeah, Mike Tyson's the reason you know Steve. Yes. So I, you know, I had this idea and I got 
somebody to give me a $17 million guarantee to go to Mike with, but I didn't know how to go to Mike. So my friend, Dan Harrison, who runs um, scheduling at Fox now, he said, you should talk to my friend, Steve, because he just spent six months with Mike doing a documentary for beyond the glory. Right. So I, I come in, <laughs> we had an office uh, like in the Fox building at Sepulveda or Steve did. And I go in there and his first office is literally like a football field. It's like, like seven offices that he's carved up and carved out and made this gigantic office. And his desk is like nine feet wide, you know, and deep. And I, so, you know, you feel like a little kid sitting on the other side of it. And I walk in there and he looks at me and he goes, so what's your story? fuckface?" <laughs> This is Steve. Yeah. So I I did not know whether I should kill him or partner with him for the rest of my life. So I decided the latter. And so a few days later, I told him what my plan was. And he said, let me get into it. So I'm on my way. I'm on my way with a buddy to, I don't even remember where we were going to some event. And I get a call from this guy, Steve Michaels. And he goes, uh, Mike Tyson wants to have dinner with you tonight. And I was like, well, you know, I can. I got this other thing. He goes, I don't think you heard me, motherfucker. Mike Tyson wants to have dinner with you tonight. I said, okay. So I dropped off my buddy at the hotel right next to our office, coincidentally, and I drove to um, Ago. Is that the name of it? Yeah. And there was a, a round table. It was just a few of us, and there was one chair that was empty all the time, and that was for people to come over and sit with Mike. So okay. everybody in the restaurant took a chance to come sit over with wow. Mike. So, um, I won't get into too many of the details cause they're private, but you know, I, we approached him with the idea and the opportunity and he said, no, mm-hmm. um, he said, I, I don't want to fight in the octagon. I'm mm-hmm. not interested in it, but I want to fight Roy Jones. So, so Steve and I, I know people in the boxing world. My friend, Jeff Reed is a you know big boxing attorney and he put Riddick Bowe's whole career together. Wow. And, um, so I sneak in the bathroom and I'm like, I'm standing in a stall the way people do, you know, on the top of the toilet. I'm like, I called Jeff. And I said, I know you're going to think this is completely ridiculous, but I'm having dinner with Mike Tyson right now. And he wants to fight Roy Jones. So that led to an incredible series of events where Steve and I became bonded for life because the highest highs and the lowest lows and, you know, chasing that match. I mean, just, but you know. I, at one point I was in Vegas and I was waiting for them to come and get me. They said, sit down here and wait, you know, at this slot machine and we'll be down to get you. And it was like six o'clock at night cause we were supposed to have dinner. So at like two 30 in the morning, I'm still sitting there because I'm young and curious. Like, what is Who, this? Who's they? Mike's handlers? No, not Mike. It was Royce. Oh, okay. And oh, geez. so, you know, they were great. They were amazing people to be around, but uh, you know, the boxing people had taken over by then. So right. Steve and I were just kind of like popcorn on the sidelines, but we were involved. And because you guys are just two big sports guys and you just wanted to play a part and get nope, this done? No, nope. we just came up with, you know, again, it's opportunities, connecting the dots. You right. know, that's the way you pursue things. And so we got into this crazy, you know, just hectic situation with all this going down. And there were, you know, angry phone calls and happy phone calls and all this stuff. And Steve and I were just completely mesmerized by the experience. And we formed a partnership that, you know, I think is the greatest partnership I think I've ever seen in our business and certainly, you know, that well, I've known in my lifetime. You, I mean, you guys are a Hall of Fame duo. And I was thinking about it. Like, if you think of all the great production companies and, and producers in the reality business, a lot of solo acts, right? I was thinking, like, pairs are kind of a, a rare thing. You know, you have, like, Eli and Aaron are doing their thing, and I think they're kind of well on their way. You have the guys that took over Lighthearted. 
not a lot of pairs. And I'm fascinated by it because, you know, by the way, Zoo, you know, probably like a great pair no longer, right, when, when Barry and John were doing their thing. Liz and Tony, Liz and Tony, great pair, no longer together, right? But I'm fascinated by duos because, like, I operate like a one-man band. When you guys are going into the room, do you guys have a routine? Like, do you guys know what role you play when when pitching? Is someone more the song and dance man and someone more the chiller? I mean, I do not want to refer to myself as a song and dance man because I, I can do neither. Um, <laughs> but, I, no, you know, when Steve and I, we have very opposite skill sets and very opposite personalities. But okay. the entire time that we've been together, we've never had a fight in our entire lives. Like, we are completely bonded in the idea of you know, doing this business the right way, the best we can do it. And these are our friends that are buyers now. And so there's, in our minds, a real responsibility, you know, because when we first started, it was just like pitching for sport, you know, it was 30,000 feet, you can say anything, you know, and people were trying things out. But now, obviously, it's a much more mature business. And but our whole thing was Steve um, is a trained producer, USC film school. And I crawled out from under a rock in mm. a state school in Pennsylvania. And huh. I, co- I come from three generations of, you know, salesmen and I'm comfortable in that role. Got it. And, you know, so we basically had a deal. I sell them, Steve makes them. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Now, of course, See, I never knew that as yeah. an outsider. I never knew that was the dynamic. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he would just come in and stare at me because he really doesn't have a sense of, you know, how these things come to be. So he would just turn his chair around and stare at my desk and he'd be like, we don't have enough shows. And then he would sit there and stare at me like I was going <laughs> to squint my eyes and pop a show out, you know? And, and you're uh, like, we're not getting a lot of second seasons of shows, Steve, yeah, yeah. as the guy making up. I never, I, I just, you know, my job was to continue to feed and, right. you know, I, I have a tremendous, you know, not just amount of respect for Steve, but I have a lot of love for him. And, you know, I think you only could want in your partnerships in your life is to fail in a way, if you are going to fail, which all of us do in this business, that you can look each other in the face and say, hey, you know, we did the best that we right. could and we both carried our weight. And as this company grew, you know, um, obviously things changed. You know, we right. our, our division of labor was still intact, but we both were overseeing a lot of things together and making decisions about the growth of the company. So some of that changed, but the fun of it never has changed. I mean, you know, Steve would go into a room and, you know, I'd be pitching something and he didn't even know what we were pitching because he never saw it before. So we'd go into a room and I'd start pitching and Steve, <laughs> he can't handle like you any... wait, You'd go into the room, you've prepped this, you've gotten it ready. Yeah. He has no idea what the pitch is. Yeah, and this was before everybody, you know. I mean, obviously now we have Ben and Matt and they, you know, are the consummate pros and right. do everything the right way. But, you know, we didn't. <laughs> so we <laughs> we were in there, you know, spinning plates and doing the whole thing all of us were doing. And, I, you know. But you... would you agree, like, now you kind of have to be more buttoned up than maybe you had to be like... Like seven years ago? Maybe? Well, again, I, I think that that's more about being accountable to the people yeah. that you're, you know, these are our good relationships and our friends, our legitimate friends. And like nobody wants to sell them something, right. you know, that isn't going to work or doesn't have a chance or built on falsehoods. And, you know, so I look at people like, you know, Craig and Tom and, you know, and Leslie and all these people that you say, you know, they're, they're on their own. And I think it's incredible what they do. And I look mm-hmm. up to, you know, all of them. And I think that, you know, they're incredible producers. Um, and, you know, since we've had a chance to spend some time with them mm-hmm. because, um, you know, A&E, uh, 
networks would put on producers' conferences. Right. Well, before that, Steve hated everybody. So <laughs> we didn't know anybody, but he would, he would come in and he They were all be, the enemy? Yeah, he'd, be, he'd put yeah. a Hollywood reporter down on my desk and he'd like point to it and he goes, why don't we have that show? I, and I'm like, I, uh, you know, Steve. I, 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 I suffer from that too. I got to be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's so much shot in for it in our business, but yeah. I really, really got to remind myself to just like let everybody have a win. It's you know not, I mean? you there's know, enough I, wins for all of us to go around. You know, the... the I think that our market has really grown and matured, and I think we're in a stretch where we still need to figure out some things, um, you know, as a as a business. But the the core fundamental idea of it is is that you have to believe in what you're talking about, you know, yeah. and that is something we grew into because I would walk into a room and I would start pitching something, and Steve would just feel the tension in the room that there was a hole being dug and that we weren't, you know, yeah. being successful. And he would go, you know what? No, we're not going to pitch this. I hate it. We're this is a terrible show. And I'd be like, well, Steve, you know. Could you just let me finish? He's like, no, this is, it's awful. I don't Can want to Can we not talk about this in front of the buyers? <laughs> no. I, just like, you know, sometimes you, you think to yourself. Steve goes to the other side of the table. Yeah. Pass the mic. What does that, what does so, that mean? This is a, this what is, happens all I wasn't, time? I was not yet at Asylum yet. Ben had just started. We started sort of around the same time. He started a couple months before me. But tell the story of Real Screen West a couple years ago. Yeah, it was my first. It was my third week or fourth week working at Asylum and we uh, go to Real Screen West and Asylum had a very specific way in which that they were developing as a lot of companies do and, sure. and um, you know Asylum was very much a materials company we wanted to have you know things ready when networks had an uh, they had an idea they wanted something specific oh we have that we have that ready to go so have a lot in the tank have a lot in the tank ready right. to go make prep all those pitches be able to speak you know at length to what they were so we are we saying networks? Or are we not? Yeah. So we we sit we sit yes. we sit with History Channel, and it was myself and uh, Steph Lidecker who ran our department at the time, and Steve, and it was Cabana, and so we sit with Paul the, Cabana. We okay. sit with Jonathan, the, I think you are in a coma. If you can't if you, if you can't if you can't hear Matt Shanfield, he just said Jonathan was in a coma at this point, and he's not he's not joking. More more on that later. More on that in a second. All right, so you're at real screen. You're pitching Paul Cabana. So we go into a project, and right before we start, you know, Steve starts, you know, busting chops with Paul a little bit about a project that they had in development. And Steve goes, "You know what? I- I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to take this pitch with you." And Paul, play along as a night. Paul's being a nice guy. He's you know improving. He's like, "Okay, Steve, let's see how this would go." So Steve literally t- gets up, moves to the other side of the table, sits with Cabana. We pitch. I'm, I'm like, how long is this charade going to actually continue? We go through the whole pitch. You've been here three weeks. I'm here three weeks. I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like, well, is this? I mean, this is different, but maybe this is how it's supposed to be done. <laughs> maybe, maybe they do something different. But uh, it was it, actually a, an idea that Paul I thought liked, but Steve shot it. Right Steve down. shot it down. <laughs> no, Paul, you don't want that. You don't want that idea, Paul. But you know what? I would say you probably learned from that. Which, which we talk about all the time, was the comfortability that Steve and Jonathan have with the buyers, right? Because that, that is different than anything. Yes, else. that that is something that new. Is. And, and that only comes with experience and, and real relationships where you can finally let your guard down in a pitch and just talk to them like drinking buddies mm-hmm. and not have that seller-buyer you know, dynamic yeah. in the room. And that just comes with experience. I mean, and it's also it's a new thing. I think that now, as you mentioned, all the legacy production companies and all the, the the titans of the industry who are now running these companies or oftentimes just left theirs. There's sort of that disconnect where they know these people so well. They've been knowing right. them for years and years and years. And to Jonathan's point about responsibility, that's a big part of it. And so walking into those situations and hawking your wares. 
can sometimes all line up, the stars all work together, or it can kind of be a little bit incestual sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for you guys, I mean, talking about you know enough wins for everybody and enviable slates and and reputations. I mean, Asylum is one of the few companies in the business that does both scripted and unscripted, right? And there's really only a, a handful of people that do that. My former boss Ben Silverman and Leslie Greif, right, come to mind, and then you really got to really think hard before you come up with another producer that does that steve's history with beyond the glory but you guys having done some of the best 30 for 30s the kennedys 10 emmy nominations i mean the list goes on and on you would later do the mike tyson series for fox right you start the company in 2003 10 years later you sell to legendary 100 percent sales to legendary but I'm also intrigued by how certain strategic relationships with network partners can shape an entire production company's trajectory, and it can be a mutually beneficial relationship for that network in return for years to come. You know, it's Tom Beers and Deadliest Catch with Discovery, right? Um, you guys in Reels, the relationship between Asylum and Reels really fascinates me. You guys are getting ready to sell to legendary and then shortly before that becomes public i think it's announced that reels strikes a 50 hours content deal with asylum and when i remember reading that i was like i've never seen anything like this i've never heard of a relationship like that before was that part of the kennedy sale going to them after history decided they couldn't do it i mean was that, a, was that a bargaining chip no, that you're gonna throw us this no, on the side 100 was not it had okay. nothing to do with bargaining or anything i mean you know when we were making the kennedys which was you know um it was something that dirk you know and i discussed and the opportunity came from that and of course you know we went on to build build it into something significant and everybody at history was just so amazing to us and yeah. it was a new thing for both of us it was a trust fall for both of us like they hadn't done scripted and we hadn't done scripted so of course we brought in Joel Cernow from you know 24 and sure. people that I knew well um, that I knew could lead us in the right direction because again, if they're going to try something like that, like I don't want to fail them. Mm-hmm. And even though things didn't work out, you know, in the end, um, the experience was incredible. I, you know, those were friendships for life, and you know, still things I, you know, relationships I hold very, very close to my heart. When <laughs> we were at Real Screen, um, and I found out that our show was being sold to something called the Reels Channel. And I didn't know what that was, but um, I felt a little weepy, you know. <laughs> like so I, you guys didn't have the relationship with Reels before no. the Kennedys, actually. No, um, you, hadn't, you hadn't done Beverly Hills Pond or any of those shows no, before. That all came afterwards. But you know, Stan Hubbard, who um, owns Reels Channel, is literally one of my closest friends in the entire world. That's what now. I was ask, because they're yeah. off in New Mexico. Yeah. They are, and but I mean, you know, sometimes these relationships, because of the intensity of what we all do, they're forged in fire. Right. And I'm not just talking about Stan. I mean, everybody that I, you know, have a relationship with, my um, relationship with them comes before anything else. Like, that's just the way I feel. But Stan, you know, <laughs> I remember I was flying back from real screen, and Steve's like, I don't even know what to say. It's like, I'm not, you know, I said, well, I'm going to the four seasons in Westlake to meet this guy, Stan Hubbard. And, you know, and I said to Joel on the way there, clearly he's from New Mexico. If he plans a trip to LA, but stays in Westlake. Yeah. <laughs> clearly, clearly not a savvy well, LA a, traveler. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm not a Beverly Hills four seasons, dude. I'll take the Westlake one too. But, um, you know, I, so we Joel and I were driving out there to meet them. And I said to Joel, like, this guy's either going to be like our mm. closest friend or our worst enemy. And I really don't know because mm. we were 
upset. Yeah. Because we didn't know what this thing was. But and can I ask you real quick? Yeah. You said when you found out yeah. your project, your eight part, your eight parter had sold to reels. Is that because A and E Studios handled that because they were the studio of record? Um, so a and E Network. A and E Network it. Yeah. sold it off. Yes. Okay, got it. History Channel basically got sold it. it, and you know, and thankfully they, you know, they did that because it was a lot of work that went into it, and right. it, to put it on the shelf. Um, would have been, you know, painful and, and would have they, changed. And they had a huge investment in it too. So they need yeah. to make some money back. Yep. And they did. And I, it changed the trajectory of our company overnight. Right. So I get, I get with Stan and I sit down at the, you know, and Roger, who's, you know, his, his guy is number two and Robin McPeters, who is the PR person. And I sit down and like in one second, I knew that they would be my, you know, they would just be everything I yeah. could ever dream for in a partner. The most amazing Stan is li- literally the most incredible, solid. You know, he comes from broadcasting royalty, mm-hmm. um, and his you know his Hubber Media is right, a, you know, significant. And Stan is just as salt of earth as they come. And people say that, but usually right. isn't true. But literally, it's true. Like Stan is a pilot himself, <laughs> and he flew and picked me up and dropped me off at my high school reunion and then come on yeah he did i mean he he just is like he's your a network real, executive he's not an executive he owns he's the own, he's on it. Yeah. Your, network, your network owner picked you up and flew you yeah he flew me to he's my like richard branson of new mexico he's just amazing he's just like he's like a a network superhero in his plane you know yeah. it's like i i, I envision him with a cape and you know uh, up there flying around trying to be an independent network in an environment like this and succeeding um, is an incredible accomplishment. I don't think people, you know, talk about it much, but I give this guy, you know, uh, not only do I give him credit, but I literally would do anything for him. But to answer your question, you know, we started, I said to him, you know, if people only see the Kennedys, they're going to run in through the front door, watch the Kennedys and then run out the back door and you're never going to see them again. Mm. Like we need to start, you know, if this is a relationship that we can, let's see if we can build some content behind it. So we started with Beverly Hills Pond, but we did, you know, umpteen series and still work with them a lot. And we just finished after Camelot. The how, did, how did 50, how did the the number of 50 hours though? Like, why not just like, ah, we'll buy from you when you guys pitch us. Like, how did you arrange that? No, we are going to just enter into 50 hours. I mean, it wasn't, I, I don't know that I have a, an amazing answer for you other than, I got a chance to see from the network side how difficult it is to program because Stan, you know, as we are today, but he takes, you know, pitches and shows from lots of producers now as, you know, as the, as the network has grown. But at the time there wasn't really anybody pitching him. Yeah. So, you know, we took it upon ourselves to very early on, way before the commitment for, you know, uh, the shows. We, we just started working to try to figure out how we could help this place and how we could be a part of it. That's and we cool. tried some things. I actually killed one of my own shows hmm. because I said, this isn't, it's not working and let's just kill it. You know I mean? It wow. was because I think what came with it and what I understand about things now is that it's a huge responsibility. You know, it's not, we all try to pitch and sell shows and, you know, that's amazing. And we get a, we get a buy or a win or whatever. And, you know, there's joy in Whoville, right. you know, but there's a lot that goes onto it on the other side. And having never worked for anybody in my life up until, you know, legendary, 
um, and the Red Robin, of course, I, you know, getting to see that made me a lot more responsible with the kinds of things, like not trying to just push things through or trying to sell because I thought so, I mean, really do the work. Mm. And I think it's paid off not just in that relationship, but in general. And, um, like I said, Ben and Matt, you know, they're better than I ever was. And they'll, you know, they're growing into a place that has those relationships and they service them incredibly well. Well, I mean, give me, give me the quick sales pitch, uh, here at Shanfield, how many, how many asylum series will be delivered or projected to be delivered in 2018? Just to give people an understanding of how much traffic is running through this place. Right now we have 13 active series, four of which I think we're waiting on season twos. I think there's like, I don't know, seven or eight that are in like active production right now. We just got two seasons renewed, uh, one for TLC, one for Velocity. And uh, our new series are starting to air, I want to say starting in December. We have one on Oxygen and then one on Bravo. Good Lord. Um, so you can have that's, like, that's just unscripted. That's, scripted. that's just unscripted. Yeah, yeah, that's just unscripted. And, 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 and Origins had scripted, I don't know how you want to go, impressionistic recreate elements to it. But Origins, beautiful. I mean, eight-parter for Nat Geo, Jason Silva from Brain Games, right, was kind of like the, the engine inside of it, right? No? Yes? Sure, we can go with that. Um, yeah, I think, well, the, the, the impetus for that was a, a, a YouTuber, actually. So the whole huh. thing started with a guy that we found on YouTube um, who goes by the name of Melody Sheep. And he hmm. made these fantastically beautiful music mashups using science and uh, found footage. Wow. And he had this idea for utilizing that style to tell uh, the story of humanity. And so we developed that internally and pitched it to Courtney Monroe, and we didn't get a chance to pitch it anywhere else. And... It was a six-month development process, and we, you know, a lot of good writers and researchers kind of on board on that. And then they ordered it, and uh, a couple of months later, or weeks later, we ended with up with Jason as our host. But there was definitely some different opinions. Got it. And is the pro- the other project in that geo breakthrough? Mm-hmm. Has that aired yet? No. Yeah. So that's in its second season just there. So and that's, that's what, us. And that's what General Electric and Imagine. Yeah. I mean, so look, that's a test case in sort of Nat Geo 2.0, right? So right. Jonathan and, and Steve and the development team had this great you know, concept along with Brian and, and Ron for, for Breakthrough. They pitched it to Nat Geo. Nat Geo liked it, but still it's an expensive show. Right. And so for them to really feel comfortable moving forward, they needed a third party. And that's where General G Electric in. came in. And that's kind of like a 30 for 30 for like ingenuity for innovation, so to speak, if that's the, sh- the elevator shorthand, right? Yeah, science and technology. Right. You know, and um, and every episode was directed by a different director, and we used, uh, you know, big-name directors in season one. Right. So Pete Berg did one, Ron Howard. That's so cool. Giamatti did one, and so it was that's great. That's awesome. That we had some hilarious pitches on the way by because <laughs> that show changed its colors and stripes many, many, many times as most do, but they were very dramatic. I won't um, name names, but we were in a room once pitching and the executive in the room said, you know what? Look around, look around the room. And we were in a conference room and there were all these, you know, absolutely anchor big time shows, you know, right. around the room. And she said, we are in the home run business. And this is not even a single. <laughs> I was like, that's the greatest thing I ever heard in my life. I could not have loved that anymore. This was, this was the breakthrough pitch? Somebody it said started, that? Yeah. But, you know, it Please did. Please tell me what network and yeah. who that was. It wasn't. An, it was. It's not uh, something I'm going to share. So last last question before we get into the story that I know everyone's going to tune in to, to, to hear here. I don't want to take up too much more of their time. But real quick, why Legendary? Uh, of all the places you guys could have sold, you're, you're 10 years in, you started in 2003, you sold the company in 2013, uh, you're, we're 
2014. Okay. Of all the majors out there at that time that were buying companies, the, the, all threes, Discoveries, you know, Fremantles, Endemol Shines, Core at that point, Apollo, right? There's so many players at that time and place. Why Legendary of all the – was it because of the scripted relationship? Because they're making major feature films and, and that was part of it? What, I mean I think the – And who beginning approached of, too? I think the beginning and end of it is Thomas Tull. Yeah. I, you know, just could not have any more respect for him as a person and, you know, I – Sometimes, you know, when there are a bunch of people who have had success, you know, in their worlds, um, coming together in, in that way is sometimes difficult. But Thomas made it really easy. We had actually agreed to a deal with somebody else. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, Thomas, you know, lived in my neighborhood. And he, he texted me and he said, you know, can you and Steve come up to the house? He's like a Thousand Oaks guy, right? Where, where, uh, at the time it was Calabasas. Calabasas, okay. And so we... Uh, we went up there, and of course, I already knew. You know, the second we agreed to go up there, like bad things were going to happen. So, <laughs> meaning, I mean, meaning bad things for the other people that I you just, agreed you to. You know, I knew things were not going to be in a straight line anymore. Yeah, you know, yeah. that things were going to get wonky. And right. you know, we walked in, and you know, Thomas was wearing his Pittsburgh Steelers sweatpants, and I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, so okay. I immediately said to Thomas, "This is never going to work." Right. Like, you know, because of course I can't stand. Any part of that. And my friends would think I was a complete hypocrite. Sell out. Yeah. And so Thomas just said immediately, he said, why don't we just unite in our hatred for the Ravens? And I was like, <laughs> that is such a great answer. Okay. So we sat down and Thomas laid out the plan for what Legendary was going to become and what his vision was for it. And I have to say, you know, he's a a bigger, badder version of everything, you know, that you find great in people and our business, when you get to that level, of course, a lot of things happen that are not in your control, but the fundamental concept of what Thomas was and who he is as a person, man, it really just appealed to me. So, you know, it was really at the end of the day, there were a lot of really amazing people over there and they, you know, made a very significant investment, obviously in us. And was the other uh, offer for a hundred percent as well? No. Because that, that's a rarity too, is it not, Jonathan? I mean, a lot yeah. of these deals you read about, it's like 50% with options to buy more and like reverse buyout. But I can't remember last time I just saw straight 100% sale. Well, I mean, this is this is the way in which, you know, the brain trust over there yeah. felt, which is we don't, and these are, this is a quote, we don't want to own 50% of anything. Right. So, you know, but that wasn't really the decision. It wasn't really about the 100% or the yeah. 60%. It, that wasn't it at all. It was in, really, retro, in retrospect, is it because they knew that they might be selling in the future and they needed to have I'm 100% not, I'm not of assets? I'm not privy to their plan. Okay. I mean, you know, I wasn't privy to the inner workings of the company. Our, ours was really just to, yeah. you know, be the part of the company that we were supposed to be. And, um, you know, obviously I got, you know, kind of sidetracked a little bit. And, uh, well, let's get into that, <laughs> but I, you know, just to finish that, I, you know, I'm great. I'm grateful for, to them. You know, I think, um, uh, it was a very strange feeling for me. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I did go to real screen that year is, is that, you know, we had sold to them and I felt this humongous weight and responsibility to perform at the highest level. So not going to real screen was not really an option. Holy shit. Wait, so this came just off the heels of the sale. Well, we sold in April. We sold in April. So it was the January thereafter. January 15. Yeah. But you know, it does, you know, you know that that's speed dating for producers and networks and so forth. And my team had spent as all of them do, you know, sleepy hours, you know, in here getting ready. And I just did not feel comfortable at all with them being there, you know, without me to be there to support them. Right. And, 
Um, so that's why I got on a plane. You know, it seems ridiculous to people, but that's why I got on a plane. And I'm thankful and grateful that I did because I'm more than a little bit sure that if I had stayed here, I would be dead, that I was fortunate to be in um, proximity to one of the greatest trauma hospitals on the planet. And, you know, I barely had a chance to survive even then, but that chance came from getting on a plane and going to real screen. Okay. So walk me through this. You go out for real screen, you fly out, you're doing the conference thing. And and what is the first moment that you're feeling off? Well, I mean, I felt, I felt poorly, um, the day before. Um, and then when I woke up that morning, I had my wife take me to, I was just trying to do what we all do. I was trying to power through it. You know, I didn't feel good. Um, I told Jennifer, my wife, I felt like I'd been hit by a truck and I said, this before you, you flew out or she yeah, came before, with you? No, okay. before I flew. Okay. And I said, you know, can you get me in the shower and see if you can, you know, um, bring me back to life a little bit so I can go because I need to go and be there for, you know, my team and right. be there for the company that, you know, invested in us. And there's just a lot of feelings like not going was not an option. So I went to the hospital. I went to a hospital here in the Valley and for some reason they did two flu tests and came up negative and then they gave me a shot of morphine and I don't really know why. And for somebody who never does drugs or drink or anything, like I was stoned out of my mind. <laughs> I, I was like, I was rolling so happy and I, I took a picture of a public storage sign and I told my wife, this is where I am. Can you come find me? Cause I started wandering. And, but I felt so good. I, as soon as I got in the car with Jennifer, I, I called Kaylee, my assistant and you know, I said, Kaylee, you got to get me on the next plane. Cause of course, you know, Steve's firing off text messages. Like, are you okay? Or are you going to die? Yeah. Literally that's, you know, wow. <laughs> you know, so that's Steve and you know, you yeah, get it right. the way it is. So it made me laugh and you know, so I got on a plane now. I don't really know the truth of this. There's a rumor. I, I think that I flew next to an, a 70 some year old former business attorney who spoke to me about the ways of the world in a way that, you know, was just so insightful. I felt like I gained 30 years of knowledge on a flight from here to DC. Others feel as though I flew with one of our friends who's an executive. I don't know which is true because I was really, really out of my mind on morphine. So, okay. So <laughs> I mean, people told me it was Heather Olander, but people I told you you were sitting next to yeah, Heather. Olander I don't know that. And I, you know, I'm a very close friend. I like Heather a lot. Former guest on the show. I've never even asked her, but you know, everybody You've said, never asked her this. No, I, I never, I don't know. It never has come up, but I, I swear I got there and I told, should we call her? Should, I we, told, settle, should we settle this debate forever? I told, I told can everybody your office to call Heather Olander just real quick. <laughs> um, I told everybody, you know, like. Oh, I had this incredible time with this, you know, business lawyer, and, you know, and I and everybody's like, no, the morphine was in your system for that long. Yeah, well, for me, it really affected me. I don't Holy. know what to say. Okay, and then I, I got out, and it was snowing really hard, and the car service came and picked me up, and I always sit in the front seat, you know, because I like people and whatever. So I talked to the guy the whole way there, and he was having trouble at home, and we were, I was counseling him, and you know, I. I I'm just saying, like, I don't have any way of counseling him, but we're talking about whether he should or shouldn't procreate. Like, this whole thing's going down, and I'm still buzzed out of my mind. So I go to the hotel. I see Steve and he and everybody, our whole team, mm -hmm. and I look probably not quite right. And Steve goes, you're a mess. Don't ruin our first night here. Go to bed. So... <laughs> In the loving way in which he does. <laughs> right. so think I of did. the team, Jonathan. Yes, so, think of the team. Yeah, so I did. I went to bed and I got up the next morning and I've told this guy this, so I don't mind saying it here, but 
I was in the, I guess we were in the middle of a tough negotiation with Jeff Suttleson. Okay. And, uh, you know, Jeff. I think those are the only negotiations with Jeff Suttleson, but, <laughs> but yes. you know, sure. I like Jeff, but I, you know, I, we were in, a, I guess we were in a tough spot, but my brain was not working right. So right. I was about to fall down in the middle of the floor in the conference and I was trying to get to a discovery ID pitch with Jane and everybody. And I could hear Steve's booming voice throughout the hall. So I was trying to follow it because I couldn't really see very well. My vision started to go and I saw Jeff Suttleson and I forgot that we were in the middle of some, you know, heated exchange because I really don't participate in those things anyway. I just support Steve and his heated exchanges. And, you know, so I grabbed him um, to shake his hand and then I reached over and I grabbed him by the tricep like an overly familiar handshake. But I was really holding myself up. I was just trying to stay upright because I didn't want to fall Anyway, and so I went to a couple of pitch meetings, and I think I'm not. You positive. go on to pitch meetings from that state? Yeah, well, you know that's what I do. I'm, that's sure. my job. Sure, no, yeah. you're, you're so. I think, if I'm not mistaken, that we we after we pitched Discovery ID, we went and we met with James Bolosh, and I think he's the last person I saw before everything went haywire. And I think I saw at least three James Boloshes in the meeting, which is really what was telling me, like I was pitching to the one in the middle. No wonder I, the story got out so quickly. Yeah, James yeah, Bolosh was yeah, the one you had yeah. your last meeting with. I'm not sure that's true, but I, in my mind, in my mind it, might have, James, been, no. it might have been, you know, the business attorney from the plane. I really don't know. I was right. not thinking right. So, you know, um, I stopped uh, that meeting short and I started to walk out in the hallway and I tripped um, and Joan Harrison, who runs scripted for me, she saw me and she's the only adult in this whole building. Um, and she said, you know, you're in trouble. You know, you need to go to the hospital. I'll meet you out front. And so I went upstairs to get my discovery slippers from our trip to Vancouver sure, freebie because no, they were the best. I love, I, I have so many pair now because <laughs> they sent them to me as a present, a get well present. Cause they knew that it was a big deal that I stumbled up to my room and I basically, you know, I could have fallen asleep there and I would have died, you know, right there, but I had to get my discovery slippers. So I, I, uh, I went and got the slippers and then, um, I told Joan I wanted to go to the hospital by myself and that she really needed to stay and pitch, you know, that that's what we came here for and I would be fine. And so I went to the hospital and, you know, I don't know how much you want to hear of it. It's a very long story, but, um, you know, I was sitting out feeling okay. And for like three and a half hours, I sat out in the emergency room lobby and I was eating snack well cookies and drinking Powerade and sending obnoxious text messages to people, you know, who mm-hmm. were asking how things were going. And I was sending pictures of my gigantic bloated face and, you know, a mask on. And I'm like, not as well as I had hoped this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, it just got to be a, a decline that was happening very quickly. It was literally just, and like, you're all alone. Yeah, I'm all alone, but I, I felt comfortable being all alone. Right. You know, I, I think if anybody was with me, I would be concentrating on how they were feeling as opposed to answering the questions and trying to participate because I was really trying to understand what was happening. Yeah. Um, and, you know, very quickly, it's a teaching hospital. So you go, Doogie Hauser comes in first and then, you know, you progressively get to a, a more senior level. Well, I right. ended up with the most senior level, which I knew was probably not great news. And, um, you know, but I told Jennifer, my wife, that I had pneumonia and not worry about it. Like I had heard them say pneumonia about somebody else in the hallway. So I just assumed that they were talking about you. No, I just didn't know what to say. Oh, I didn't want to worry anybody, you know, because I didn't know what was wrong. Nobody knew what was wrong. And, you know, very shortly thereafter, um, 
my whole world started to come apart physically. You know, I couldn't think straight. My um, feet were freezing cold. My sister who lives in Washington was rubbing one of them. And Corey Abraham was nice enough to try to, you know, rub my other foot. And I'm, wow. you know, try, just trying to get through this. And, you know, Ryan Lochner, who runs, you know, our, our company and, um, and you know, Stephanie Lidecker and these people were starting to come, Denise Contis and Sean Boyle, and people were starting to hear about what was going on. But, mm. you know, I don't have any recollection really of any of mm. that. And so I got into a kind of a fight with my, you know, mortal enemy, Dr. Lynn Abel, who's also the woman who saved my life. Mm. And I told her, you know, she wouldn't give me any water. And I really... I really wanted water. I was dying of thirst. And I mean that in a real way. I couldn't breathe because I was so dry. And she said, well, you're not getting any water. So, of course, you know, I said, I've been a decision maker in my life since I've been very young. Like, I don't have to be treated like this. I'm going to (laughs) leave. So she said, I understand. She said, you'll have to sign this form, you know, that you're leaving against medical advice. Um, And also, by the time you get in the elevator and get downstairs and hail a cab and get wherever you're going to go, you'll probably be dead. So I sat down and she got my attention and, you know, um, I was just trying to be a good soldier at that point, but I didn't understand what was going on. I, my brain was completely devoid of oxygen. And so I couldn't think I couldn't make a decision. I couldn't like, I couldn't even decide whether to move my left foot or my right foot. I couldn't decide anything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was being very obstinate. I think I asked her at one point, you know, are you even a real doctor? You know, I was being, Mm -hmm. I was being unpleasant, which is not really my personality, but she told me, you know, that, um, you need to contact, you need to contact your loved ones because, you know, there's a very, very good likelihood that you're going to die tonight. Uh, 90% likelihood that you're going to die tonight. And so I thought, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I thought of that movie Dumb and Dumber. And I thought where he that says... That does sound crazy, yes. Yeah, I thought to myself, you know, he says, so you're saying there's a chance. Like, <laughs> I really did think that. And, and um, best, use of that, best use of that reference I've ever heard. So I, you know, that she had asked me to, and I, of course, got in touch with my wife. and But, but, but she's telling you this without... Giving you any explanation of know. what will cause it or what will happen? She's she didn't know. She, she, she could see that I was slipping into a septic, a septic scenario and that okay. my hands and feet weren't just cold. They were devoid of any oxygen and they were dying. Okay. So, you know, she knew what was going on. Well, um, but she didn't know why. She didn't no. cause it, what the source was. She no. just saw what was happening. She saw, you know, and okay. that happens. I mean, you, yeah. you see that when you do her job, you see people in septic shock and most of them die. So, you know, she was being real about that. But Oh, my God. So know. tell me about this phone call to your wife then. Well, I called my wife. You know, I texted with my wife and I just said, okay. you know, this is serious. You should come. So she got on a plane and, yeah. you know, she came. My sister was there. Jennifer's parents had come in. And then it was sort of time to make contact with my daughter and oh geez yeah i just couldn't yeah so i just decided not to die <laughs> because you know she shouldn't have to how old, how old your daughter at this point she's 15 then she's, she's 18 15. now yeah and is this your only child yes oh yeah yeah no i mean i know that's a good question but even if i did have other ones i don't know if it would have been any easier um but right. you know she you know, so I never did contact her because I'm like, well, there's no way that she should, you know, have to get that text or mm-hmm. a call from me. If I die, she'll deal with it then. So the thought is that your wife's going to come out alone 
and that she will just say whatever. Well, you know, whatever message, super... whatever message she wants to give to your daughter, she'll handle it. Well, you know, my ex-wife was is amazing. She was one of the stars of Beverly Hills Pawn, and she's you know, okay, like, really, you know, amazing mom, and um, she's just you know. You guys are separated at this point. Yeah, we've been divorced for a decade. Oh, more than okay, a decade. got it. Okay, I didn't know. That. Um, got it. But okay. you know, she was great and the decision was made because my daughter you know had bronchitis and that she couldn't fly anyway but you have to understand what was going on in the room like i ripped everything out i threw my you know father-in-law on the floor trying to like godzilla my way out of this place i wanted to leave right and then they came in and dextered me and put me to sleep and jennifer didn't get to see me so that was like a big issue because i was trying to hold on but you know, at least the way it's told to me, I was kicking my legs and screaming and in terrible pain. I remember because everything was taking over you, your yeah, system. I really and, don't remember any of that. You start just lashing out, right? Yeah, lashing out. And they put you, they induce a coma then. Yes. And how long were you in that for? Um, two and a half weeks. Yeah. Two, two and a half weeks. weeks. Yeah, and I, I think I've said before, but you know, I think a part of this journey that was really shocking. It was that, you know, you look at, I could see pictures of myself now when I was in the coma and, you know, you look very peaceful, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's, you know, it's, um, epically terrible and, you know, lots of hallucinations and nightmares that mm. don't go away like regular nightmares and they don't shift. They're just steady. This is where you are. You're being held captive in a farmhouse in oh Maryland. You know, uh, there's a piece of twine on my left shoulder that's holding me down and i'm thinking to myself i'm so strong like why can't i you know why can't i break this piece of twine and get out of here and um the people that were holding me captive they had giant faces and sharp teeth and they would never talk to me they'd only talk about me and i got a real sense oh my that, god god just, that just gave me shivers that explanation just gave me shivers honest to god they i got a real feeling that um i was laying on a bench like you might see in the gym like you know two slats and you know yeah and um I got a feeling that somebody had been there before me and that there would be there somebody after me, that this was just part of their, what they do. And then, you know, the first morning they came in with a crate and they opened the crate and there were, you know, incredible amounts of poisonous snakes where they would lay them on top of me and encourage them to bite me on the face and bite me on the chest. And, you know, what they were saying to each other is, is let's find out which one of these snakes would kill our livestock. So they were using me as a, you know, as a guinea pig of sorts to find out. So that happened every morning and it happened every morning for two and a half weeks. And so, um, I was in the room when my mom died. And so I know what that sounds like when you're taking your last, your last breaths. And, um, there's a mixture of reality and hallucination that goes on when you're in a coma. Like there are things that are happening around you that you pick up, but yet, you mm-hmm. know, these hallucinations are very strong. And I sold the Detroit Tigers to a Japanese businessman while I was there. Like a lot of crazy things. Happened. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. We went to Japan. We were, you know, hosted by the government. Uh, Jennifer dressed like a geisha. It was really, it was a terrific trip. Um, and, Did you do um, karaoke while you're out there? I don't know. I don't think so. So, you know, then what ended up happening was I could tell that my breath was becoming super labored and very shallow. You could tell is, that. Yeah. I, well, I mean, it, I, I was feeling that. Yeah. I, I would try to just just try to get any oxygen I could. So as soon as I admitted to myself, you know, that I thought I had 11 breaths left, that's what I said to myself. I have 11 breaths left. And as soon as I said that to myself, I got transported into this, you know, room with no temperature, 
no atmosphere, no nothing. It was just like devoid of everything, but yet everything that had ever been a part of my life, people who like me, people who hate me, like everybody was filled up in the room, but there was nothing in the room. And I, there was a drain in the middle of the room and I was walking across the floor and there was a door on the other side and I was walking to get out because I wanted to get out. And I thought it was like an escape. And as soon as I walked over the drain, I heard this very distinct voice. I think Steve does it better than anybody because it was very deep. And I don't know if it was a doctor, if it was the universe, if it was God, if it was my subconscious. And it said very clearly to me, do you want to keep doing what you're doing? You know, and of course I said, no, like who would want to keep doing what I was doing? That was torture. And, but luckily the voice understood me and understood that that's the way I was thinking. And so it said to me, if you do decide to live, it'll be the most awful, painful, horrifying fight of your life every day for the rest of your life. So I said, yes, <laughs> you know, and, um, you know, that's, that's, I understand the fight. I get it. It doesn't matter how hard the fight is. I mean, all of us that do this as a business, as silly as it seems, we were all forged in fire. This is a hard thing to do. And, you know, you have to really have, a, you know, a constitution that will allow you to reach well beyond what you think you can. And I, you know, did that. And so I got transported through these very dark, you know, um, to light series of, it was water kind of, it was like ink black and then it would get lighter and lighter and lighter until I popped my head out the top. And, you know, I woke up from my coma at that point. And, um, you know, and when you, and when you wake up from the coma, are you consciously aware of the fact that you've been out for longer than an hour or two? Like, yeah. do you know? Yeah, I mean, I feel like I lived the life in there, you know, it's right. not even, you're, you're I mean, still, you're, so you like immediately, that's all sitting with you. Well, I mean, you can tell it's sitting with me now. Right. So, right. so it didn't come know, to you later. Like that it, was just, it, it's a real event in my life. It is yeah. not something that my brain can figure out was a hallucination. No, that was a, two weeks you spent somewhere and you remember it yeah, like you and, would any other yeah. reality. Yeah. And it was awful. And, um, you know, and then, but the weird thing was, is that I, came out and Jennifer and I were not married at the time. We mm -hmm. had decided that we didn't need the state of California involved in our lives. And we lived like we were married anyway. And, um, but I don't know, something happened. I just wanted to marry her. Yeah. So uh, the first thing I couldn't talk or anything, I'd been intubated for a long time. I had a tracheotomy. I had heart failure and lung failure and kidney failure. And, you know, I wasn't really, like, I popped out of a coma and that was, you know, right. off to six flags. It was just, a, you know, um, but I found a way to, you know, Jennifer wasn't there when I woke up, but her mom was, and they went and got her. And, you know, I asked her dad in whatever way I could, if I could marry her. <laughs> and wow. yeah. So, and so just tell the audience and for those that don't know the story, what, what are you now living with day to day as a result of this? What, sorry, what was the verdict? What was it? Um, I had something called HLH, which I won't mutilate by trying to tell you what the name of it okay. is. It's extraordinarily rare. It's an autoimmune you know, scenario. Okay. So my immune system went crazy and it started killing everything good and bad and killing me. And it wasn't until, you know, and I should say this cause I think it's important, but you know, being your own advocate in the hospital or any situation where you're not just passive, you know, Jennifer was a superstar and she, you know, it's so romantic when somebody says to you, Hey, you're my medical power of attorney until this happens and then you're like, well, you know, how is she supposed to know how to deal with this and make these right. decisions? But, um, you know, they were in hazmat suits, they, you know, infectious disease, like, uh, you know, it was just a, and no explanation of where you could have caught this or how it would have, no, I mean, really 
I think what has settled out over the last number of years is that um, that my immune system was just compromised at that time, at that moment. Mm -hmm. And I encountered, as we all do, 95% of the people in America have encountered, you know, Epstein-Barr virus. And most of us just fight it off as, you know, as nothing. Got it. But somehow it triggered a response to me that wasn't nothing. And so, you know, I, um, you know, it was, it was an incredible, it was an incredible fight, you know, but I ended up losing my right leg and the toes of my left foot and my right hand completely. I mean, my left hand completely and my right hand, uh, I lost all the fingertips. Wait, you know? so your left, the left hand I'm looking at right now, this is a transplant? It's a transplant, yeah. Unbelievable. It's crazy, huh? Amazing. It's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, again, this, this journey, even though it's been difficult in so many ways, and I mean, challenges you to the point of, you know, the way in which you look at things. People always talk about the perspective of near-death experiences and all that. That hasn't really been my thing. I think what, you know, happened is, is that I... I had to grow so huge mm-hmm. to deal with this that other things don't seem as challenging for right. me yeah. um, because there's no way in the world you could ever prepare yourself for, you know, that's what I thought, that you could never prepare yourself for something like this. And, but yet, you know, every day I would, when the doctors would come into the room, I'd try to sit up and smile and be a participant and let them know that, you know, I'm ready to go. Like I'll, I'll fight whatever. I had them tie resistance bands to my bed the first day I wake up from my coma. You know, I was trying to, mm. it was silly, but I tried to, you know, try to exercise <sighs> and I lost, you know, 55 pounds. I lost my hair, you know, the amputations of course. And, you know, just getting healthy, just trying right. to actually recover on the inside, forget what the outside looks like. How long after you woke up from the coma were you still in D.C.? Like, how long did it take before you could come back home? Um, well, we went from D.C. to Mayo Clinic to try to get answers. Right. Because, you know, the trauma hospital and Dr. Abel and that whole team, Dr. Staniff, everybody at GW, they saved my life. But I think we had kind of expired, you know, in the sense of nothing else was going to happen, right. you know, and limb preservation team was there and they were trying so hard and, you know, doing hyperbaric chamber treatments, which is literally like being, you know, to me, even though some people were doing crossword puzzles, you know, I didn't have use of my hands or feet and I wasn't healthy. And, you know, they put a metal collar around your neck and then they put a plastic hood over you, everything you've been taught not to do as a kid. And you stay in there with a plastic hood over your head, um, for over over an hour and a half and you know you can't move and it's literally like being in a for me it was like being in a coffin and so every day i'd have to you know everybody in my room and everybody would almost like i was going out to you know to wrestle or be in sports or play tennis or whatever like they were all hyping me up like you can do it and you know and then when i would get back even though i never ate like this before or since there was always a big thing of dunkin donut holes <laughs> and i that's what i got as a reward for making it through there but you know it got really ugly i mean i was being wheeled to one of these things and uh i was wheeled past the nurse's station and one of the nurses said as i was going by he said hey is that jonathan Koch?" and the other one goes no he died three days ago and i'm like well why do i have to go through all this then like i don't, I don't want to go through all this um but you Wait, so know how long were you out there for total um when did you when did you come home i came back in uh late april so i was gone for almost five months from january to april yeah and then we came home here and became part of the UCLA program and got to meet Dr. Zari, who, you know, 
I, I must have looked terrible because, you know, to hear him tell the story, you know, I'm doubled over in my chair and I'm all, my hands and feet are black and dead and mummified and I have, you know, I have nothing going on. And yet I'm telling him about, you know, this person that I am and I can handle it and tell me what I need to do. And Jennifer is like, do you have any hands here that we can just get one now? Or how does this work? <laughs> how does this work? Do you yeah. have hands on standby? <laughs> yeah. We really didn't know. So she's like, is there, is there a selection of hands that we can have? I mean, it's like, an, but like. It's an incredible match. I mean, the hand I'm looking at right now that you're holding the microphone with, and now I'm seeing where the connection takes place from from your your forearm to to the hand. I mean, even the color, uh, the coloring of the hand is it's part of the process. The process I, mean, I got treatment. very, very, very fortunate. Doctor Azari and I became brothers and partners, and not just doctor and patient. You know, um, I knew what he was going through, and that this surgery is a Super Bowl for somebody like him. This is the one, right? And there were. 35, you know, surgeons and doctors and countless, I mean, there's hundreds of people. How many hand trans- transplants like that take place in our country in a given I year? Think there are, I think I was the 81st in the world. Right. Yeah. It's, it's still very innovative. Yeah. Matt Shanfield. Um, when Ben and I started, you know, we didn't know you that well. We didn't know you kind of prior at all. And um, just as you were going through all that, I think one thing that we both loved was just your sense of humor about everything and it just triggered a memory um which is which is somewhat dour but but the fact that you even had a sense of humor about this was ben and i would come in we'd talk about new development we'd talk about new ideas and i remember one time we came in and it was right when the whole um lamar odom thing was going down where we didn't know which if lamar, lamar odom thing <laughs> that, <laughs> be specific man. yes <laughs> lamar this, was found this the in chicken, the chicken ra- lamar was found the bunny ranch, ranch the and there ranch. was a time where we didn't know if lamar was going to survive right. and i remember jonathan one of his first like humorous and just being like okay now i, I think I, I get a sense of just jonathan's sense of humor was ben and i came down we start talking he goes guys i think i'm gonna get lamar odom's hand <laughs> <laughs> i mean we you know when when they came and did the 2020 and not so much different than here where we're having a, a serious conversation but you know the truth is is that jennifer and i and my daughter ariana and everybody in our life like we laughed our way through this whole thing really you know we just had to it wasn't like well you know if i didn't laugh i'd cry it wasn't like that it was you know they followed my lead in the sense that you know and i believe this very strongly it is what it is the first thing i did when i saw my hands and feet unwrapped and they were purple on their way to black is i said that's impressive because it's amazing that your body will shunt all of your blood to try to Mm. save you by you know killing off the non-essentials um i I thought it was incredible but that is definitely the optimistic way to look at that i mean it was i mean you know and i think all the way through this you know i mean obviously these guys and the company is like in great hands but steve you know had to you know, I, I remember when I, when I first tried to call Steve because, you know, there were a few things on my checklist that were just like, I have to do this. And I know I can't speak at all. I have no voice whatsoever. I can barely whisper. I, you know, I fall asleep after three minutes of trying to do anything. I fall asleep for four hours. I'm on, you know, 270, 280 milligrams of morphine every day. You know, it was just terrible. So I, I called Jennifer, held my phone up and I called Steve and I was crying. I was like, you know. Hey man, but he couldn't hear me. So he said, you know, after like a little while, I kept trying to say something and I couldn't. And he goes, I can't understand a fucking word you're saying. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, you know, that is just, that's just awesome. And, you know, it helps you. 
it helps you. And everybody was great. And everybody, you know, came and visited me and, you know, they were a part of my recovery and, you know, I did it um, as much for them as I did it for myself. Last, last question. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you go. Were you religious before this? I'm, I don't think I'm religious now. I don't, it's okay. not an organized religion thing. I, you know, again, like I didn't, I wasn't sure how much the Cameron family maybe influenced your, no. your thoughts on Christianity I mean, or anything. No, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, I love them. But to then pieces, when you are, but, you but know. when you are describing, you know, the voices and, and the faces with the teeth and, you know, like an assembly line, there was a person there before you, there'll be a person after you. I mean, a lot of people would say that might be demons or, you know, whatever the afterlife. You know, the I, door. I don't know. Did this change any of your philosophy or perspective on the afterlife or religion in general? You know, I think one of the things that, you know, a lot of people came to visit, you know, from all the way through my business life, my you know, childhood friendships, like everybody came to visit me and I was in a wheelchair for a year and, you know, things were not going great, but they would all come and they would sit with me and almost universally, everybody asked me the same question, which is, what do you know that I don't know? Right. You know, because I think that there, you know, um, there is something that's changes in you. And again, I, I kept everything in my life. I didn't throw away things in my life and that made me feel good. Like I actually do value the life that I put together. But, um, you know, I, my perspective has only changed, like I said before, which is I, you know, inside and my capacity and capability, not just for myself, which has never been a big part of my life. I don't think about me all the time. I think about, you know, I get joy and pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment out of the people around me, you know, having their time. And so, I get the same joy and happiness that anybody else was, but I do it by looking outward, not by looking inward. Mm. And so, you know, when I went through all of this, I wouldn't say that it changed me from a philosophical or religious or, you know, I, I, I don't think that was it. I think mm. I learned a lot about, you know, what you're capable of mm. and, um, you know, whatever that voice was, which still, you know, right. gets to me because it's so, it, it was, it was so intense. Um, but you know, I know that, for instance, for me, like the purpose of my life is different now. Yeah. Um, I've always wanted it to be the purpose of my life, but nobody really, that wasn't the hamster wheel I got on. Right. And now that I have these visible injuries and people know the story and, you know, in combination with our business successes, you know, I've had the opportunity to go out and speak to a lot of people and I will continue to do that as long as people want to hear about it um, because it's helping them right. and that's important to me. So. I don't really think there's a religious aspect to that. I think it's, um, I really just, I feel this is, this will answer your question a little better. So when I was making the decision, you know, uh, when I was leaving the bench to go to the The room, you know, I, I can still feel it now. Actually. Um, I felt a hand on my tricep that was picking me up and, you know, like when I got out and I started reading the 405 letters that came from all of us at real screen, like all of our people, you know, that wrote these amazing letters and, you know, a hundred of them were, Hey, I heard you were sick. You know, if you didn't want to pitch, just tell me that was just fine. <laughs> I don't care. Then nobody knew what was going on, but so many of them were not that way. They were very heartfelt and, you know, and, um, shared a lot, but, you know, I do associate that little feeling on my tricep and when I needed to be lifted, that I could feel all of it. You know, Mm. my daughter's school, she went to Oaks Christian and, Mm -hmm. you know, I walked in there, um, walked in there. I wobbled in there, (laughs) you know, at some point in time. And I was just swarmed by a bunch of people I don't even know. Mm. And, you know, just, uh, you know, the outpouring. So, 
Wow. Thank you. John the Gotch, thank you very much, guys. It was a lot of fun. We can tell some fun stories. I didn't mean to, you know, be so serious. I don't think people can hurt. I think that's the whole reason people are going to be tuning in. Yeah. <laughs>